What a tough start to life for Shuggy Bain. I'm Roger and this is Bookshook. Today's podcast is all about the first half of August's book, Shuggy Bain by Douglas Stewart, published in 2020. So the idea of the podcast is that we'll spend a month reading a book, hopefully together. I'll split the book into two equal halves and discuss the first half on the second Friday of the month and the second part on the last Friday of the month. I'll be sharing your thoughts and mine, asking loads of questions, discussing ideas, making predictions, and we'll decide what type of person we'd recommend the book to, if at all. I'd love you to read alongside. Of course, you don't have to read anything at all. You can audible or just listen to the podcast since I will be summarising what happens. But be aware, there will be spoilers. You can leave a comment or start the conversation at the Bookshook YouTube channel or send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. I love reading your comments. Welcome to Bookshook. So I've read up to the end of chapter 17. And just to warn you, this novel deals with very adult themes. So you might want to just double check the content of the book before going onward. You have been warned. So the novel is set in Southside in Glasgow. This is 1992 we start off. And Shuggy is working in a deli. He really wants to work with hair. He's 16 and three months old. Jackie, one of the till ladies, is, quote, a big, bosomy sofa of a woman, and it was her that Shuggy liked best. All three of the till ladies at Killfeathers, Ina, Nora and Jackie, take him to bingo and like to fuss over him a lot. In Shuggy's bedsit, there's an old man in his tenement that he's sharing the house with who seems very unwell, and he reflects that his mother would have hated his bedclothes. What has happened to his parents, I've written into the margin. I wonder what has happened. He cleans himself with a flannel and he looks at himself and says, quote, it wasn't how real boys were built to be. So already we're seeing that he's not maybe matching the stereotypical idea of a male in Glasgow in the 1980s. Joseph Darling is another tenant who introduces himself and perhaps we're going to hear from him a bit more later. We then go back to when Shuggy was just five and a half years old. That's ten years earlier. He's in Sight Hill. This is a high-rise block of flats. And Agnes Bain is his mother. She's leaning over a high-rise flat, their home, that she shares with her mum and dad. And she's actually contemplating suicide. She's 39 and she has a husband and three kids and two who are almost grown up. She's playing Friday night cards with her friends and her mum. And there's this wonderful scene of Agnes handing out, quote, cross your heart bras that she got from, quote, a fella selling them off the back of a lorry down Paddy's Market. Catherine, one of her daughters, she's 17 years old, interrupts the party with a crying shuggy. And Catherine has just become an assistant to a chairman in the city. They find Agnes's dad's secret stash of alcohol and her dad is called Woolly and they drink and they dance together. And I've written in the margin here that alcohol is a very big part of their lives alongside religion. They're constantly talking about who is Protestant and who is Catholic. And also gambling is very important. For example, bingo and cards. Then we see Shug appear. He's Agnes's husband. He appears in the doorway and he's a taxi driver. Quote... 
He stood there in his press suit and narrow tie, the leather taxi belt in his hand, and he coldly surveyed the departing women like a drover at a cattle auction. She had always known that Shug appreciated the very high and the very low of it. He saw an adventure in most women. There was something about how he could lower beautiful women because he was never intimidated by them. He could make them laugh and feel flushed and grateful to be around him. He had a patience and a charm that could make plain women feel confident like the loveliest thing that ever walked in flat shoes. He was a selfish animal, she knew that now, in a dirty sexual way that aroused her against her better nature. It showed in the way he ate, how he crammed food into his mouth and licked gravy from between his knuckles without caring what anyone thought. It showed in how he devoured the women leaving the card party. These days it was showing too often. What a great description. Licking gravy between knuckles. I don't like the sound of this guy at all. And believe me, he doesn't get any better. Shug takes Rini home and Agnes knows that he will be unfaithful and tries to avoid her mother's accusatory glare. Leek is her older son and he is drawing in a notebook by the light of a camp light. Quote, he did not look up and she could not see his grey eyes under the shade of his soft fringe. The room was warm and close with the breath of his sleeping siblings. Agnes folded some of the clothes that were strewn across the floor. She took the pencil from his hand and folded the book closed. You'll hurt your eyes, darling. He was almost a man, far too old to kiss goodnight now, but she did so anyway and ignored it when he recoiled at the very smell of heavy stout on her breath. So Agnes is an alcoholic. She is constantly looking for drink throughout this first half. Agnes remembers that Shug took her to see the Blackpool Illuminations and she drinks and Shug tries to resist the drink when she's in Blackpool. And then Shug brutally attacks her and forces himself on her when they get back to the hotel. It's a really painful memory of this Blackpool visit. Sometimes he's called Big Shug and Big Shug goes out to work and there's this great simile of him with his taxi. Quote, As night finally fell, he pulled his black hackney round in a small tight circle. It spun like a fat dog chasing its tail and headed out of the Sight Hill estate. He parks up and watches Glasgow, quote, shining with rain and street lights. Rain was the natural state of Glasgow. It kept the grass green and the people pale and bronchial. He picks up a football fan in his cab and then he picks up a lady whose husband has just lost his job and then Shug reflects on Glasgow. Quote, Glasgow was losing its purpose and he could see it all clearly from behind glass. He could feel it in his takings. He had heard them say that Thatcher didn't want honest workers anymore. Her future was technology and nuclear power and private health. Industrial days were over and the bones of the Clyde shipworks and the Springburn railworks lay about the city like rotted dinosaurs. Whole housing estates of young men who were promised the working trades of their fathers had no future now. Men were losing their very masculinity. And this idea of what it is to be masculine is all through this first half. There's been a few references to Shug's Masonic ring, and I wonder if Freemasonry will come up. Shug is given a, quote, special request. This is a 24-year-old hospital cleaner called Anne-Marie, who says, quote, But I love ye. And they quickly make love. Agnes calls to say, quote, she knows everything. There's a fish and chip man called Joe DiRolo and he asks Shug if he still wants the subsidised flat 
Quote, I'll let you know, Shug said, backing out the door. Mrs. Bain, well, she's difficult. And the fish and chip shop man says, I'm surprised you want to move at all. Thought you'd be living like a king up there in that sight hill sky. And Shug says, the king is fine. It's the queen that wants a beheading. Just hold on to that empty house of yours a while longer. There's a lot that has to be lined up first. I want it all to go perfect. He smiled and bit into a fat chip. Shug wants to sleep with Joni Micklewhite, who's the CB operator woman for the taxi rank. And little Shuggy, who's the little six-year-old son of Shug, lines up the ladies on the side of his mum's tenants' cans and he monologues about, quote, ordering shoes and whoring husbands. Agnes is very lonely. She has a mini dance party with Shuggy. Actually, his name is Hugh, uh, but he's, he's called Shuggy. And Shug returns late from work, and Shuggy notes Agnes's contorted face. Quote, He could see her face was lopsided, the paint on her eyes was blurred and running away. It looked like the lager beauty sometimes did, a careless printer and a misaligned screen, and suddenly the woman was no longer whole, just a mess of different layers. Agnes sets far to the room, and Shug comes in and rescues Shuggy. And I'm thinking, I wonder if Agnes is dead, but she's not dead. Catherine watches the orange parade from her office and she arrives back near her flat and she knows that something's up. And then Catherine gets stopped at knife point by some news and she seeks some refuge at her brother's den, which is made out of pallets. It's kind of hideaway that he escapes to. And then there's a really tender moment between the two siblings and she sees his drawings and she knows that he's good at drawing. Catherine persuades Leek to come home and face her drunk mother. Kath says, quote, I think there's been some trouble. Well, there has been some trouble. There's this fire. And then we go on in the narrative. Agnes comes into breakfast and sugar's gone. And her father is sitting there. Quote, he cracked his rough hands together. The sound was like booming thunder. Am I always to be a milksop in my own house? He was not a man who raised his voice. Agnes buttoned her lip. Even Lizzie stopped her sniffling in the kitchenette. Lizzie's her mother. Willie Campbell was a man built for loading granary barges down on the Clyde. Now remember, Willie Campbell is her father. She had seen him single-handedly clear a pub of a half-dozen disrespectful Liverpudlians. Every day at a quarter past five, you'd come running down that road to meet me as neat as a new pin. I asked your mummy to make sure you were clean. She used to say to me, Willie, is all this palaver really necessary? But sure, it was the only thing I ever asked her to do. A man needs to take pride in his family, but people don't care about things like that anymore, do they? Willie's tattooed knuckles were knitted together in anger. It gave me that much pleasure just to be proud of you. I could tell they were jealous, hanging out of their windows with tight faces. Grown men and women, jealous of a wee shiny bit of life like you. I used to laugh when they'd said you'd be ruined. And Agnes says, you did good, Daddy. I was happy. Then what have you got to be so unhappy about now? He goes on. So tell me, Agnes, am I to belt you? Am I to beat this selfish devil out of you? He rose slowly from the table. His arms were loose at his sides, his hands massive silt buckets at the end of iron cranes. I'm tired of you coming first, Agnes. I'm tired of watching you destroy yourself and knowing it's my fault. I love these really appropriate similes. Massive silt buckets at the end of iron cranes. That is the kind of language that the father would know about in his industry. And then the father beats Agnes as the mother supports him, quote, in the name of the Lord. 
There's some very strong reminiscences of Cathy Ames being beaten by her father here in East of Eden, and that didn't turn out well at all. Agnes waits for Suge to return and wonders which lady he's bedding now. Quote, At first she had thought how stupid Suge was to get caught out so easily. Only later, when she confronted him, did she learn that she was the stupid one. He hadn't been caught out. He wanted to make sure she knew all about it. Agnes tells her mum, Quote, you should have stopped him, her father, that is, when he was beating her. And Lizzie, her mum, says that she wished she stayed with the good Catholic. Quote, and this is Lizzie speaking, Honestly, I was that happy for you when you married that Brendan McGowan. He seemed like he could give you what your father had given me. But look at you, you had to want better. Why shouldn't I, says Agnes. Better, Lizzie used her clenched teeth to itch the tip of her tongue. Look where better has gotten you, selfish article. Continuing the narrative, Agnes tells Lizzie that she needs to move out. Quote, We just need a fresh start. Suge says it might make everything better. It's only a wee place, but it's got its own garden and its own front door and everything. Lizzie waved her cigarette airily. Oh, la-di-da, your very own front door. Tell me, how many locks do you suppose this front door is going to need to keep that wandering person at home? I've taken out the rude word. Agnes scratched the skin around her wedding band. I've never had my own front door. Continuing on, Lizzie eyes up Shuggy's blonde doll. Quote, Lizzie narrowed her eyes at her grandson, at his blonde dolly. And she says, you'll be needing that nipped in the bud. It's not right. So there again, we have this very, very strong idea of what it is to be a male. Young male boys do not play with dollies. That is what the message is here. And I'm hoping to see some kind of fight from Shuggy, <laughs> fighting against these male stereotypes. Continuing on, the narrator recounts her leaving her good Catholic Brendan McGowan covertly. So this poor McGowan guy is stunned as his family leave him. And Shug whisks them away. And Shug is as honest as ever. Quote... There was a long pause. Why were you late? asked Agnes from behind the collar of her coat. Shug didn't answer. Did you have second thoughts? He stopped looking in the mirror. Of course I did. Agnes brought her leather-gloved hands up to her face. So there he is, being that awful honesty again. Shug says he was late because he was saying goodbye to his four children. A ween is a, a young person. Quote, Do you know how long it takes to peel four screaming weans off your leg? To kick them back down the hall and shut the door on their wee fingers? His eyes were cold in the mirror. No, you don't know what it's like. You just tell Muggins here to come get you. You sally out with suitcases like we're off to Millport for the day. McGowan had desperately tried to get Agnes back, but she did not return. They travel to this new home then, acquired with the help of the chippy man, Joe DiRolo. And there's a lovely quote from Suge here. Quote, Joe said it's like a happy little village, a real family sort of place where everybody knows everybody else. Nicest place you could hope to live. Somehow, I don't think it's going to be a happy little village. That's what I've written in the margin. Let's see if I'm right. So they travel to this horrible pit house. I was right. And... Agnes says, what a exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, she slurred. And to think I dressed up nice for this. They move into Pithead then, and Bridie Donnelly is a lady who lives opposite, and she makes conversation and inquires who, quote, her man is. 
And Shuggy appears and says that living here is impossible. Once he's just said impossible, quote, the heads of the audience, these are all the women in the street, turned one to another in shock. It was like a dozen faces looking at their own likenesses in the mirror. Would you get a load of that? Liberace is moving in, screamed one of the women. The women and children howled as one, high squeaky laughs and throaty coughs full of guitar. Oh, I do hope the piano will fit in the parlour. So there we go. It's clear that Shuggy doesn't fit the general stereotype of young boys once again. The house only has two bedrooms. It's very, very small. And Shug decides to leave. He leaves Agnes. Quote, I don't want your dinners anymore. Don't you get it? He was shaking his head. This is it. I can't stay anymore. I can't stay with you. All you're wanting, all that drinking. Shug visits her for sex. And Catherine says, quote, why don't we just go back to Sight Hill? But Agnes couldn't explain through the hurt. She knew he would never come back if she returned to her mother's. She was to stay where she was dropped. She was to take any little kindness he would give. Agnes finds out that Suge is sleeping with Joni Micklewhite, the taxi operator lady. Quote, does she keep a nice house? Not really, he said without looking up. Agnes drank as much lager as she could in one go before she needed to lower the can to take another breath. When she was done, she asked, So, is she good looking? I told you on the phone, I don't want to talk about her. He ripped a slice of white bread in two. Let me eat my dinner in peace. I didn't drive out here for a fight. Poor old Agnes. And then listen to this. This this is Suge about to leave. Quote, Suge picked up his money belt and kissed her with a forceful tongue. That's Agnes. He had to squeeze all the small bones in her hands to get her to release him. She had loved him and he had needed to break her completely to leave her for good. Agnes Bain was too rare a thing to let someone else love. It wouldn't do to leave pieces of her for another man to collect and repair later. What a nasty gentleman. And that's putting it as politely as I'm able. Agnes goes to get a drink at the miners' club, but Bridie persuades her to chat with the other ladies. Bridie says that the mine used to be dangerous and that men aren't working as much in the mine. And the ladies know that Agnes has a big drink problem. Quote, and this is Bridie speaking, she drew on her fag. Aye, the minute I saw you, I sported it. They thought you were the big I am, all done up in sequins, like some big dolly bird from the city. But I could see through it. I could see the sadness, and I knew you had to be a big drinker. Bridie offers Agnes some valiant. She says, quote, If you want more, I'll look after you. Special price. Continuing on, Shuggy is now seven. He's not at school, and he's wandering around aimlessly, and he meets a boy called Bonnie Johnny. And then there's some really beautiful writing. At the side of the bin shed lair washing machine, the kind used in hospitals or government buildings, solid and big as a wardrobe. It was too heavy for the bin men to take away, so it lay rusting next to the shed, and fat lazy flies dipped in and out of its shadow. Inside the machine sat a boy with his legs above his head, curled around the drum like a broken bat cat. Want to spin in my carnival ride? Shuggy was startled to find him in there. The boy swung inside the drum and rocked in semicircles. In one second his feet were above his head, the next his head were above his feet. Look, it's dead fun, he coaxed. Shuggy held Daphne, now Daphne's his little dolly who carries around. Shuggy held Daphne out to him and offered her up for first go. The boy uncurled from inside the drum, pushing out his long brown legs like a spider through a keyhole. He arched his body out backwards, straightening. He was almost as tall as the metal machine. He was a good year older than Shuggy, at least eight or nine, starting the long stretch already. 
And this Bonnie Johnny causes Shuggy to get some injuries in the washing machine and then Johnny forces Shuggy to touch him inappropriately. Continuing on, the older children are escaping and Catherine goes to Donald Jr. and Leek goes back to Sight Hill where Lizzie is. Agnes spends all her benefit money on booze and Agnes decides to go into town to pawn her fur coat. And this fur coat was given to her by Brendan McGowan and really does represent wealth and opulence or at least the wealth and opulence that she was hoping for that she certainly doesn't have anymore. She meets a mechanic when she gets caught out in the rain and he senses that she's an alcoholic and he wants to help her. And this is him speaking about Agnes and Sugar because she's told him about Sugar. He says, quote, Do you know what to do if you really want to get your own back? He paused. So like a man, she thought, to have an opinion on everything. What? It's quite easy. You should just get on with it. He slapped his hands and threw them open in a wide ta gesture. Get on with your life. Have a great life. I promise that nothing would annoy the pig-faced Baldy more. Guaranteed. I've edited out some of the swear words there in case you're driving along with your children in the car. Continuing on, Catherine takes Shuggy with her to see Donald Jr. And he meets Uncle Rascal. And then his father shows up and Joni, the other woman from the taxi rank, Joni Micklewhite. She gives Shuggy some roller skates and Donald Jr. explains how he's hopefully going to the Transvaal in South Africa to mine there. And Shug says, quote, I don't think that boy is mine when he sees Shuggy enjoying the skates a lot. And he's generally nasty, Shug that is. Listen to this. Quote, Shug turned to Catherine and asked, What do you think she'll say when she hears I've seen him? Catherine looked at Shuggy. She could see the scalding in his cheeks. Oh no, we can't ever say he's been here. A mean smile broke over Shug's face. He spoke in the pushing voice that bullies in school use when they wanted to see a fight. Go on, let him tell her. What a nasty piece of work. Shuggy wishes his sister wasn't leaving him for South Africa. Continuing on, we've got Leek doing some walking amongst some slag heaps. There's some wonderful writing. Have a listen. Quote, The black slag hills stretch for miles like the waves of a petrified sea. The coke dust left a thin grey coating across Leek's face. It hollowed out his already gaunt features, outlining the thick horse bone of his nose and darkened the fine hairs of his scant moustache. His feathered fringe had stopped bouncing up and down and lay heavy and grey against his forehead. He looked like a man made of graphite, like one of his own black and white drawings. It was slow going climbing up the crumbling black hill. It sucked at his feet and with every step it ate him nearly to his knees. The fine jet dust found every opening and filled every space. It poured over the top of his slip-on loafers, their braided tassels swinging up clouds of black like the tail of a dirty cow. On the downward slope, the loose slag raged after him like a hungry wave. Although there was nothing to him, his hollowness still brought the crust of the hill pouring down. The slag shrugged as though it were turning itself inside out, clearing him off and revealing a darker, untouched blackness beneath. Each time the hills wiped him away, he felt more unnoticed, more like an unseen ghost than usual. Crossing the Black Sea was best when it wasn't windy or wet. When the wind licked the dry hills, they took to the air by the inside of a burst etch-a-sketch, like the lead dust from a million shaved pencils. If it caught in his mouth, he could taste it for days. When it rained over the colliery, the hills felt tired and beaten. They solidified as if they had given up and died. 
Leek climbed to the top of the highest bing and sat down. He lit a short doubt and looked out over the dead colliery and the dying scheme that lay beyond. Like a diorama, it sat orderly and uniform in the peaty marshland, the way a model maker's collection of toy houses sat on a balding brown carpet. Even from here, Leek thought it looked petty and small. He took his sketchbook from inside his anorak. His sooty fingers left smudges as he tried to capture the horizon with the broad side of a soft pencil. If the pit scheme had been made by a model maker, then what a miser he must have been. Where were the miniature tin cars, the farm animals, or the green fluffy bushes that looked like spiny sea coral? Leek watched the black jacketed figures loitering around the men's club and wondered whether the model maker didn't like colourful, happily painted figures. He looked out over the scene, past the pipe cleaner trees and the carpet of dead marsh. The Glasgow to Edinburgh train seemed like a toy in the distance as it charged through the wasteland that separated the miners from the world. It created an unseen boundary and it never ever stopped. Years ago the council had ripped out the only station for big savings in station master's wages. They laid on a single bus that came three times a day and took an hour to get anywhere. There's beautiful description like this throughout the novel, and those two similarities are so appropriate to Leek. The artist, a burst etch-a-sketch, and like the lead dust from a million shaved pencils. Leek, the artist, imagines the scene as a model maker as well, and all these thoughts and feelings are entirely appropriate to Leek's character, the artist. So Leek is doing a YTS, a youth training scheme to do with a trade, but he's finding it harder and harder to be enthusiastic about it. And we find out that he was offered a place on a fine art BA two Septembers previously, but obviously that did not happen. Shuggy and he are wandering over the slag heaps together, and this is very dangerous. And Leek questions Shuggy about Shuggy being bullied at school. Uh, Leek says to Shuggy, quote, you have to blend in more. And there we go again, having to blend in. The other boys seem horrible, and Father Barry is clearly no good. He's the headmaster. Listen to this. So Shuggy is talking about being bullied to Leek. Quote, I told Father Barry on them. I asked him to make it stop. Shuggy straightened the pleat on his trousers. But he only made me stay behind after the bell. He made me read about the persecuted saints. Shuggy keeps a lookout as Leek scavenges in the coal cathedral, that's the colliery, for scrap copper. And then Shuggy is chased by a security man. He does manage to escape, but Shuggy almost gets sucked into a slag heap before Leek finds him. And Leek says how he had to hurt the watchman and he's got blood on his jaw. Leek says to Shuggy, quote, I told you to keep lookout. And Leek is not actually suspected. Bridie, the next door neighbour, says, quote, It was the best thing that could have happened to the watchman's family. His security contract would have been ending soon and now he was guaranteed disability for life. That's disability payments. Shuggy definitely feels out of place. Quote, he felt something was wrong. Something inside him felt put together incorrectly. It was like they could all see it, but he was the only one who could not say what it was. It was just different, and so it was just wrong. Continuing the narrative, Agnes drinks, and then she combs the hair of one of her next-door neighbour's children, the McAvaney children, and she gets scolded by the mother. And the narrator explains how the women don't seem to get on, yet they are all going through very, very similar hardships together. Agnes approaches Colleen McAvaney's husband, who's called Jamesy, to ask, quote, If I gave you a couple of pounds, maybe you could take Shuggy with you the next time he went fishing, or maybe teach him how to kick a ball. It's hard growing up without a man around. Poor old Shuggy. This is not going to end well, I don't think. 
But the husband of Colleen McAvaney, this Jamesy, doesn't want money, so she pays him with sex. Jamesy does agree to take Shuggy fishing, though. But poor Shuggy, he's so desperate to please his mum. Listen to this. Quote, I'm going to catch you the biggest fish ever. But does Jamesy turn up? No, he doesn't. He, quote, forgets to take Shuggy fishing. Agnes prepares to tell Colleen, Jamesy's wife, of their lovemaking to get some kind of retribution. But then a well-dressed, rich-looking woman appears in their road. And after she leaves, Jamesy screeches off in his van and Colleen begins to cry to Agnes that since the pit is closed, he's been sleeping around. And Agnes now feels they are now equals. In the next chapter, Willie is in hospital. This is Agnes's father. Shuggy seems very self-aware for an eight- or nine-year-old. Quote, Shuggy heard the nurse say to a male attendant that she thought for sure Agnes was a working girl. She is not, said Shuggy quite proudly. My mother has never worked a day in her life. She's far too good-looking for that. Shuggy is relieved when a sister says it's the body that stays and the spirit that goes to heaven because he feels very badly about what happened at the bin shed with Johnny. There's a flashback to Willie and Lizzie in the war. Lizzie has a child with a grocer, Mr Kilfeather. She doesn't believe that Willie's going to be returning. And she has a child. And when Willie notices the child, he takes the child away. And on his return, when Lizzie asks about the baby, Willie just says, quote, what baby? So there's a big question, where is this illegitimate child? So this chapter definitely exposes Willie as a very dark character. Continuing the narrative, Lizzie dies in a freak bus accident and Leek phones Catherine in South Africa. She's too upset to talk to her mother Agnes, though. Continuing on, Shuggy is clearly helping his mother with the drink problem that she has. Quote, Shuggy arranged three tea mugs, one with tap water to dry the cracks in her throat, one with milk to line her sour stomach, and the third with a mixture of the flat leftovers of special brew and stout that he had gathered from around the house and frothed together with a fork. He knew this was the one she would reach for first, the one that would stop the crying in her bones. He leaned over her and listened to her breathing. Her breath was stale with cigarettes and sleep, and so he went to the kitchen and filled the fourth mug with bleach for her teeth. He tore a page from his quote, Popes of the Empire homework, and wrote in soft pencil, danger, teeth cleaner, do not drink, don't even sit by accident. Poor Shuggy, he can't be very old, maybe 10 or 11 at the stage, I guess. Ginty comes round and encourages Agnes to do some drinking. She's no friend at all. Agnes recounts how she was attacked by a cabbie the previous night in her drunken stupor, and Ginty suggests inviting over Lammy, who's Ian Lambert, who likes a drink. He comes over, dances with Agnes, but then Agnes is sick all over him. And then Shuggy appears at the doorway and Lambie flees away. And that's the end of the first half. Wow. What a first half. Very, very heavy book. Now... Some questions then. Considering this is a book about Shuggy Bane, he doesn't have much of a voice, I'm thinking. I know he's very young, but he's just described in these stereotypical, effeminate ways. Every time we hear about him or he does something, it's always to do with the fact that he's different in this stereotypical, effeminate way. And I really want to see another side to Shuggy. I want him to show other sides of his personality. I know he's young. 
but I would like to see that. Uh, the book is all about him, but I don't feel he's got any voice at the moment. Maybe that's the whole point, that he doesn't have any voice. Another question, will Agnes stop her drinking? I really don't think she will. Shuggy, at the beginning of the novel, is not with his mum, so I guess maybe things have gone from bad to worse. And we all know that Shuggy ends up working at this place, Killfeathers. I think he'll be okay, but will he conform to these cultural stereotypes of what it is to be a boy or a man in 80s Glasgow? Or will he become a hairdresser? You bet he will. I hope he will. Anyway, what do you think of the novel so far? It's very dark. Well, that's what I think. What questions would you like to see answered? There's some really interesting ideas that are brought up all the way through the book. We have the idea of poverty, obviously, and also drink is a massive, massive theme in this. Poor Agnes with her drink problem. And again, we have religion through it and a lot of violence against other people. We've got that horrible scene in Blackpool where Shuggy's violent with Agnes. We've got lots of examples of violence. Imprints, I think, are important. For example, when Shuggy's with Johnny, quote, Shuggy could see his father's red hand marks blooming across Johnny's sepia skin. And then when Shug beats Agnes in Blackpool, we have this, quote, Slowly he took his hand away from her face. There was a pink mark where he had squeezed her jaw. There was fear in her eyes and she looked almost sober again. As he drew his hand away, the fear melted from her eyes and the demon drink came back into her face. Continuing along. He used his fingers and dug into her softness, wanting to be sure he had a firm grip. As flesh separated from bone, she cried out from the pain and he hammered his sovereign ring twice into her cheek. These define Shug, these rings and the change in his pockets as well. He's got this Masonic ring that appears all the time. Quote, Behind the man was a woman waiting to be introduced, her hands clasped demurely across her front. Shug twisted the ring on his pinky finger. Are you not going to give your old man a hug? Shuggy had not seen his father in a long time. Any time Shug had come to the pit, he had made sure the children were in bed first. Shuggy held onto his sister's leg. Catherine spoke for her brother. Shug, he's shy, and no wonder with you flicking out the ween like that. It's the Bane Code. Hit them before they hit you. He crouched, and Shuggy could hear the heavy swing and clash of many silver coins in his pocket. And then we've got Agnes's rings used as weaponry. Quote, Agnes looked at her bejeweled hands, a sparkling weaponry, knuckle dusters of peeling plated gold. That's as she was approaching Colleen to tell her about Jamesy. And then we've got James McCavaney leaving. Quote, there were sore stripes of red sunburn and fresh claw marks across his face and burnt up neck. And then we've also got Agnes at the hospital when she sees her dad. Quote, then she put her ringed fingers on the nurse's thick arm in an entitled way, each finger falling onto her flesh as if she were playing scales at the piano. I'm here to see my father. All of these imprints, I think, are really interesting. Often coming from rings. Physical imprints. And Shuggy is being impressed upon by all these different characters. There was a brief idea about disenfranchised wanting, quote, a voice in the world, however small, which I thought was interesting. There's a section where there's some news at the track side. 
Quote, now in the evenings, the eldest of the miners' sons stood at the train tracks with beers and bags of glue and watched with sadness and spite the happy faces roared by every 30 minutes. They fondled their cousins under baggy Aaron jumpers and ran across the tracks in front of the speeding train, their soft hair whipped by the near miss. They threw bottles at the windows, and when the driver let fly his angry horn, they felt seen by the world. They felt alive. And there's another very interesting idea, this lack of female warmth between women in very similar situations. There is so little sisterhood in this book. Quote, Some days, not many, Agnes thought it was a shame they could not be civil. There was so much the women held in common. Although Agnes would have bitten off her own tongue before she admitted it, Agnes had heard from Ginty that there was a time when Big Jamesy had spent the last of his redundancy on junk cars and BB guns for the boys. It had sent Colleen out to steal their Christmas dinner from the fine fair supermarket. They both knew the keen edge of need. The women could have been closer then. Separately, they had both gazed hungrily at the pages of the Freemans and lain awake in the quiet of the night wondering how to make a pittance stretch around. If he got this and she got that, then what would they themselves do without? It was a mother's math. Separately, the two women had spent whole afternoons hiding behind settees from the provident man. It was like an odd, synchronised swimming, the way the pit-head women all sank to the carpet and crawled across the floor. And then at the very opening, we have Agnes dancing and having fun and listening to music with the woman who only a couple of hours later is making love to her husband. Again, this very little sisterhood coming through. Another idea, obviously, sex as payment. Agnes gives sex to James as payment for taking out Shuggy, although he reneged on this deal. And then Lizzie to Mr. Killfeather for gaining food during the war. I'd love to hear your thoughts about the first half. Let me know what ideas really struck with you. I would love to hear them. Please let me know. I'd now like to share some of your thoughts on last month's book, which was Clara and the Sun. There were some wonderful comments on the web and on Goodreads. Henk said, quote, Without self-regard, Clara truly embodies in love in a way that feels superior to what we humans seem to be able to muster. She does not fundamentally change, but her surroundings do and people and time move on. Hence, the ending felt for me emotionally impactful and a perfect illustration of something the author said during the digital launch events. He said, there is something very cruel about the human condition. And Angie Kim said, quote, I love Clara, the insightful and noble artificial friend, and I wish she were real so that I could hug her and tell her how much she means to me. This book is all my favourite things rolled into one. Sci-fi, mythology, suspense and mystery, and coming of age, yes, of a robot, is a beautiful and powerful exploration of important questions about humanity. What makes a person, what makes a life worth living and remembering? How do our beliefs and observations change the world and vice versa? Natalia writes, quote, Clara's voice, full of childlike innocence mixed with some stilted, quote, robotic constructions, sadly does not help create an interesting narration. She's supposedly very observant and apparently very intelligent, but I know it only because we are told so by the other characters, while Clara herself, through her inner monologue and actions, comes across as little but a humanoid teddy bear. I agree a lot with that. I think the fact that she didn't know where the sun went really made me think she's very unintelligent, or at least very ignorant. Eric writes, 
Quote, her faith in the power of the sun drives her to perform a charmingly ardent act to help her child. And around this time, we also learn about the deeper purpose for which she was purchased. This means that these two narrative threads, which are light and dark, intertwine at almost the same point, making the reader feel beguiled as well as horrified. It's a powerful effect which makes it a gripping story, as well as one which raises lingering questions about the binding forces of love. And Goodreads reviewer Jenna writes, quote, There's not much that happens which would have been okay had the book been limited to Clara's observations, thoughts and feelings. I like introspective books and don't need a lot going on. However, the book just kept heading with the overuse of dialogue towards a, quote, shocking climax that I had figured out early on and thus wasn't shocking. And Nalufa said, quote, but too many things absolutely went so wrong. I felt like I stuck in mud and sunk deeper at each page. Everything I read were blurry, vague, going nowhere. No smart, earth-shattering twist. No sign of brilliant intelligence on the author's part. It was just flat, and as long as I pushed harder, I couldn't get any result. When I reached the conclusion and expected to get something different at the end, another disappointment train crashed me over and over again. Thanks very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. Email bookshook at yahoo.com or leave a comment on the Bookshook YouTube channel. I'd also love suggestions for future books to read together. Maybe there's been one sitting on your shelf for ages which you haven't got round to reading and you just need that push to get started. Talking of next books, after I publish part two of Shuggy Bane in two weeks, that's on the 27th of August, September's podcast will be about Piranesi by Susanna Clarke, so get that one at the ready if you can. Anyway, I look forward to discussing the final part of Booker Award winner 2020, Shuggy Bane, at the next episode. See you then. Mm-hmm.